On Being with Krista Tippett is supported in part by the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's Sharing Spiritual Heritage Report asks, How will we hold on to ancient wisdom traditions while applying them creatively in today's time? Learn more at Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with the wonderful Colette Pichon-Battle. There is, as always, a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Hello, everyone. (laughs) Welcome. Welcome to this live podcast recording of On Being, featuring a conversation between very special guest, Colette Pichon-Battle, a Louisiana native, a climate activist, and lawyer, and Krista Tippett, the Peabody Award-winning broadcaster, New York Times bestselling author, National Humanities medalist, and our very own Minnesota treasure. Um, I'm Kate Nordstrom. I'm the executive and artistic director of the Great Northern. And every year, our festival shares dozens of performances, art installations, outdoor activations, and solutions-focused climate talks over 10 days in January and February. We hope that they enrich the mind and inspire the body. And this conversation is our first in a series of climate talks. It is part of our climate solutions series that um, runs through February 6th, and you can find more information on our website, which is thegreatnorthernfestival.com. So we are especially pleased that Colette traveled from the warmth of the South (laughs) to experience our cold and hearty winter here in the North. So Colette, we are grateful that you're giving Minnesota winter a chance. And it's now my great honor to turn over the stage to Colette and Krista to share this very special live on being conversation. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, you, Kate. It's, um, first of all, I feel really out of practice. Like I've never done this before (laughs) because I haven't done it for two years. Um, and it's amazing. It's lovely to be with the Great Northern and that the Great Northern is happening. And yes, that you came here. And has anybody else said to you that our true Minnesotan that is a little too warm today? <laughs> I saw shorts. I yeah, saw. I don't, right. I don't know what's happening. It's, yeah, it's, right. it's a little jarring. Yeah. <laughs> it's our weather and we like it. Um, uh, I yeah also haven't been to Mia for two years so it's amazing and here we are in the old flat old fashioned flesh and blood I I have only done I've been at one event um, just recently not a not a conversation but where I was in a room um, on a stage and there were actual people like this like you and I noticed at some point that I was completely focusing on these two women sitting over here and I realized it's because they were shaking their heads <laughs> because. Because that's the only kind of way. So if you if you really like something, I'd say show us with your whole body, because we can't see faces and you really can't see eyes in the same way you can see mouths. It's one of these weird things we've learned. Um, so and I'm just so I have spent these last couple of days just really learning about you, steeping in you, and it's just amazing to have you here. Thank you. And it's I feel an like honor. yeah, we have so much to learn from you. I'm ready. Okay. <laughs> um, well, I, um, you know, I on your on your um, 
on Twitter, you describe yourself this way. I actually love, um, I know Twitter gets a bad rap, but um, the ways, what people do when they have 140 characters mm -hmm. is quite beautiful. Some of it's not beautiful, but a lot of it is incredibly beautiful and telling. And anyway, so yours, the first, the first three words of yours are believer and bayou girl. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I'm always interested in the religious or spiritual sensibility that shaped a childhood. And I'm so curious for you because clearly Louisiana and the bayou um, were part of that. And I just wonder how those things came together oh. in your, the early life that formed you. It's, it's the question for me. Um, I come from a Creole community in South Louisiana, and so we're very Catholic. Catholic and big. That's big families that are highly ritualized. And, um, you know, to drive to church every Sunday, you have to go through um, bayous and bridges and water, and you look to see if there's an alligator on your way to church. You know, <laughs> church is under these big oak trees that have been there for hundreds of years. Those pieces of spirit were always together. Um, but you're, you know, the, the the deeper part of spirit that's just really free is out out in those bayous, under those trees, and these words that you learn like magnificent and and holy and sacred. You see them. You see them in front of you. Things are very old and very beautiful. Um, yeah, and I just come from simple, simple people who do things like sit under the tree for hours and talk. You know, so that's always just been very filling, very, very spiritual space for me. So, um, yeah, I think respect and sacred have always been a part of the culture that I've been raised in. So feels natural. Is it right that you were raised um, in the same house your mother was born in? It's true. And My grandfather built that house, and it was but it was land that your family had been on. That's right. So my so Creole people are, were free people of color, and they could own land before many black folks could. Um, and so my family had been there before it was America, before it was the U.S. Um, and the land that is in my family um, extends for a very long time. So my grandfather had his his family had a piece of property, and that's where he built his his house. And he had his thirteen children, and my mom was one of those. And she was born in that house, and I was raised in that house. So the connection to that place and that land is it's not just our generations; it goes even further back. Which I think you also feel in your body, Ashe. in probably ways you can. Describe in ways you can't describe. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's ours um, without ownership, Yeah, if that makes sense. You know, um, there was nothing to purchase. Uh -huh. There was only things to explore. Mm -hmm. And the other benefit of, of where, we, where we lived is that we lived with a whole other community of Creole people. So, like, I grew up walking miles in the woods I mean, I think about that now. People don't even let their kids go like out of their yeah, eyesight. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? My yeah. mom had no idea what we were doing for hours. Uh, but walking in woods for miles, and when people would see you, they knew exactly whose kid you were. Even mm -hmm. if they didn't know your name, they knew who you belonged to. And you know, they would tell you things like, "Put that turtle down," or you know, like that. <laughs> <laughs> that one's gonna snap your finger off. You know, like something yeah. like that. You know, information uh, because you were theirs. Yeah. You weren't just your family's. You were the community's kids. Yeah, yeah. Um, something else that I loved when I heard you talking about was um, how you grew up. How did you say it? You you grew up um, knowing how to pay attention for storms. Yes. And. Um, 
and that the calm in the eye of the storm, which is not just a phrase, but a reality. It's a real thing. It's something that you knew how to hang out in. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, I actually have been thinking about storms looking at your, all the snow on the ground. Yeah. Uh, so like, how do, people li- how, do, how do people enjoy this? How do people live in this? Um, <laughs> And and it is if you calm down about it, right? You freak. So someone yeah. like me, I, I freak out about it first, and uh, then you calm down about it, and you see there's a everyone's used to it. Everyone yeah. knows what yeah. to do. Um, that's how hurricanes are for us. Mm-hmm. Well, they were um, just part of our life. You know what to do. You know what's going to happen if yeah. it's really bad. You know, you know what what we've got to do, and. I didn't grow up being afraid of storms because they were just a part of our life. Mm-hmm. But they were very predictable, very different from the storms we're seeing now because of the climate crisis. When I was young, it was it was a hurricane party, literally a party. All of your cousins, and remember, I come from that big Catholic family. It's like 51 <laughs> yeah. first cousins all in a house. <laughs> and all your aunts are cooking. You know, the, the power's going to go out, so that means we're going to be grilling. Mm-hmm. You know, all this stuff is going to, they're not going to waste food. So the free, the free, you got to get the food out the freezer and just, it's just a buffet. You're having a party and you're with all of your friends and in any moments of, of fear, you're, you're with like 20 people who love you. Um, and, and it just makes the whole experience very different Mm -hmm. because you're not alone, not knowing what's happening. You're with generations of people who know exactly what's going on, and they know exactly when to be afraid. and when, Right, and there are contained not. moments of fear, That's right. of appropriate fear. That's right. It made me also think about how, so I grew up in Oklahoma, how we all, wherever we're from, we have the storms that we know, Gosh. right? In yes. Oklahoma, it was tornadoes. Mm-hmm. Exactly the same thing. Yes. There was this moment where it could kill you, and you knew it. <laughs> and you knew, but you knew how, right? But you knew what to do. Yes. And, um... And in Minnesota, it's it's snowstorms, and in California, it's the form of a storm that is a fire. That's right. And of course, in all of those examples, um, it's not that known experience anymore. That's right. It's very different. And I think that's the part that scares me the most. Um, we're losing generations of people who know the anatomy of these things, mm-hmm. and we're getting new people into our space who have no clue what a hurricane is, and the hurricanes that we know to describe are yeah, not the ones yeah. we're facing now. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, your life changed um, on August 29th, 2005, yeah. with Hurricane Katrina. And um, a couple questions about that. I mean, first of all, you weren't there. Were you? You were a lawyer in Washington D.C. I was a lawyer. You had gone away to, to school, it's as true. we as we do in this culture. That's right. And were you watching it like on TV? Yeah, I was practicing. I was in the D.C. area, and you know, they just put the storm up on the television, and you know. I can eye a hurricane the way people here can eye snowfall. Because yeah. I saw flurries today, and I was like, is it time to go? And then, no one seemed phased by the flurries. <laughs> <laughs> so you can read a storm, and you, um, you, know, you know how to kind of watch them. They do crazy things. And anyway, this storm was way too big. It, no storm was supposed to be that big. I'd never seen one that large. It took up almost the whole gulf. And I just remember thinking, like, where's my mom? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we're Bayou people. We don't run from storms. That's just not what we do. It's, I'm sure the Minnesotans don't run from the snow. Right. 
Um, and so we don't run from the storm. So I just remember my mom saying, like, I'm here, I'm fine. And I'm like, I get out of there. I don't even know why I thought that. That's not something I ever thought before. It was just too big. And my mom packed three days of clothes and she went to my uncle's house and we lost everything, you know. And, you know, the, the assumption is it'll, it'll be what it, what it has been, right? Some water, some wind, we'll put some shingles on a roof and it'll be fine. And we lost everything. We had uh, a very large tidal surge, um, almost 30 feet coming off the ocean. And my entire community went under about 12 feet of water. And we were on high ground. That's where my grandfather's land is high ground. People would park their cars on we, every storm. We'd see random cars parked in our yard. And there's just you just knew a storm was coming because everybody would park their cars there because we were on high ground. But we went under. Everything went under. We lost everything. And That house your grandfather built? That same house. That same house. That same house on that land. And now the land is um, perpetually saturated because we're... The, the, the water is rising, the water table is rising, the lake is rising, everything, you know, the sea level rise is real. And for those of us who are very close to the sea, this is, we can see it, you know, the, the, the yard never gets dry. The trees are falling because the, the ground is saturated, you know. It's really, it's jarring to see because most people think you can't watch sea level rise, but it is very obvious in just the 16 years that I've been home, what's happening. Um, how long did, was it before you went back then? From Katrina? Yeah, for when, you went, when you went from D.C. and you went home to be with people. Yeah, so I was gone for just a few years trying to start my law career. And then <laughs> Katrina hit and um, I left. I think I went home. It was October and I've never mm-hmm. returned. Right. Yeah. Somewhere you said um, it was a crack in the universe to come home and see the destruction of Hurricane Katrina. It was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. You know, the, the worst part, you, you land in New Orleans and everybody saw what happened to New Orleans. And there's a whole thing, there's a whole story to understand the difference between the failure of man-made levees versus the um, unbelievable power of a tidal surge off the ocean. They're not the same things. Mm-hmm. They, one caused the other, mm-hmm. but they weren't the same thing. So mm-hmm. the reality of the place where I lived wasn't failed levees. It was water off the ocean. Um, water churned up from the storm. So to go through New Orleans was one thing, right? You land, you drive through. Uh, that was that was hard to see. But what you were looking at were like flooded buildings, some things down. Um, just the destruction was was. Um, I guess I had seen it already. It was on TV. They, right. The TV didn't show the places around New Orleans. So driving across the bridge on Lake Pontchartrain, um, you had to go through a, a swamp and everything was everything that was so green all of my life was brown and stinky. And it was just death. I never smelled death mm. like that. It was everything died. The saltwater intrusion killed all the vegetation in the swamp that you have to drive through. And then to come across the bridge, I-10 collapsed. So the bridge for I-10 went into the lake. You couldn't get across I-10. You, I came across a bridge called um, Highway 11, which is what we call the old bridge. Um, and to come across the lake and see nothing, there used to be houses all on the lake. They were all in the water. So all of a sudden you just see poles standing in the lake. And you know, I know as a kid, that was the best thing you could do is go to one of those houses. You know, they were restaurants and houses and you go fishing, you get to walk out on the pier. Everything was gone. Everything, everything was gone. 
Um, that was jarring. And then I just remember crying, like driving, like, what am I, why am I not seeing anything? And then you get to a place where I live where we have a lot of trees. We have these big old tall pine trees, and they were all down. Mm. My parish lost two-thirds of its tree cover in that storm. It's a lot of, it's a lot of trees to lose when you grow up. Um, you know, as a kid, you would look at the sky, and all you would see is trees, you yeah. know, and they were gone. Yeah. Yeah. That, that feels, that hits home here, too, with that yeah. image. Um, so, you know, you... You have become a climate activist. That's how you're, call, you're called. It's not a title that you ever would have anticipated or that you trained for. And I actually think that neither one of those words is really big enough. Mm. Um, and I, I feel like what you, you know, what you get at and what you've just drawn us into is the fact that this is not a, it's not a science story. Um, Climate, climate is just this tiny piece of it, right? Yeah. And but it's a human story. It's a story about home. That's right. It's a story about belonging. It's about what we know and love and hold dear. Um, I I, kept, I was realizing when I was when I was getting to know you, your work, um, thinking about other people I've interviewed who also have accidentally become, <laughs> you know, great climate activists like Wangari Maathai in Kenya or yes. Majora Carter in the South Bronx or yes. Cal DeWitt. Do you know him? He's a wildlife biologist I in don't. Wisconsin, okay. evangelical, um, uh, been, been doing this, you know, on this for 30 years. Um, the Great Northern is an expression of this. Um, starts with love, with what we love and who we love yes. and culture. Yes. Um, Robin Wall Kimmerer is another example, mm. right? It's, it, it's, it doesn't start with an abstraction. That's right. And, um, and I, I, so there are two critical moments that I kind of discovered, um, or at least that I'd like to dig into you with, that in, in, in terms of the development of what, what I would say has become your calling. Um, and the first is the story you, you tell about two years after Katrina, seeing those flood maps, yeah. seeing flood maps of this place you belong to yes. for the first time. And would you just tell us what you saw? Yeah, you know, um, there are all of these researchers uh, who, were, who were looking at South Louisiana before Katrina. Um, many people concerned about sea level rise and all of these things for a very long time, but it wasn't common knowledge. It wasn't information brought to the communities. The universities knew it, but the communities didn't know. And uh, there was a, a highly regarded um, professor who put the maps on the wall and they play, played a time lapse of land loss. And they had us all like, you know, point where you are. And all of a sudden you see time lapse and you see your community is gonna, is going. And they tell you, this is going to happen no matter what. So even if we are successful in whatever it is we want to do next, we will lose these places. We will lose this land. We will mm -hmm. lose, they didn't say communities, but, you know, we were all, several of us up at the map, just, you know, coming to that conclusion. I couldn't believe that what I saw was that this place that I hold so dear, that I had such a long memory of, not because I was old, but because all my life I had been told stories from a very long time ago. All of those stories are gonna go. Yeah. All of the trees that we sat under are gonna go. Everything 
that I knew to be like, you know, who I was, even describing just who I am and where I'm from was going to go. It's going to it's going to be lost. And that was a moment where, you know, you you sort of have this. It's it's surreal. You don't who who can believe your land won't be there anymore. Most people still can't conceptual conceptually understand that. Yeah, especially for you because you had such a such a long history on the yes. land and and much more knowledge of that history than most of us yes, do. Yes. Yeah. And that land for people like me was tied to our freedom. Yeah. You know, that well, land yeah. that the, the land and the right to be there was mm-hmm. tied to um it was a difference between being enslaved and not. Mm-hmm. You know, it was it was a it is a culture that has um you know birthed a lot of people and to and to lose that is it felt in that moment that we would lose everything mm-hmm. nobody would even know who we are and my mom is this my mom is an amazing woman who fought for french to get back into the louisiana schools so you know um just the culture has been a big part of our our um our family life so to think that people were fighting for these communities that nobody would ever really know about it was hard to it is hard and people ask me all the time if you know your land is going to go why are you still fighting you know mm-hmm. my last name is battle now krista you know what i'm saying <laughs> That's right. i don't know what they expecting you know yeah. we going down swinging if we going <laughs> but yeah no it's it's been a it's been a it's i still cry about it i still think about it you know it's not something you understand one day and then move past. It's something you contemplate daily. I take drives now just to make sure I witness. Mm. Yeah. It's like this moment where you you had survived and the people around you had survived Hurricane Katrina, but you suddenly placed yourselves in this much larger existential struggle. That's right. That we will not survive. Mm-hmm. Um and then there was this uh, meeting you were invited to at the White House. What year was that? Oh, it was in the Obama administration. So many meetings at the White House. Yeah, um, okay, but with the FEMA, with, with oh, FEMA. Oh, yes, yes. And this is so stunning that at yes. some point this senior person. Yes, the head of FEMA. The head of FEMA. Mm-hmm. Not, not apologizing, not... Um, not ex- not really explaining, but but in a moment of of just leveling with you, yeah. said because I guess I'm sure the question was partly how do we make sure this doesn't happen again? And he said, the disaster process in this country is designed for the middle class. That's right. That's right. Which you actually know, makes everything make sense. It makes it, it. It was the most honest answer and that I'd it ever. It was a gotten. matter of design. That's right. That's right. And this, you know, this gets us to structural racism, understanding structures, law and policy. Mm -hmm. And it it made me understand why I was placed here in this calling. Right. I don't have this law degree for nothing. Mm -hmm. And the laws as they are written right now are not meant for me and they're not meant for my community and they're not meant to help people and they're not meant to save people and they're not meant to do those things with the utmost humanity and dignity. They are meant to preserve a middle-class tax base, mm-hmm. period. Almost every law that we have that, you know, how does this affect the taxpayer? <laughs> it's, it's the analysis 
that is used. What was happening was there was a conversation. It was a lot of people in that FEMA meeting, and it was like, this is what happened. This is what happened. It's terrible, terrible stories. Housing, education, healthcare, everything. And the response from the head of FEMA was, I believe you. Yeah. Right. I believe that all of that happened because the laws are not written. It was also helping him understand what had happened. A hundred percent. I mean, because I think a lot of people, you know, there are bad people in this world, but mostly they're just people who are who don't know. And I think the entire um, FEMA agency had no idea how that was going to play out. Yeah. And, you know, no one could deny what they were seeing, you know, who was getting rescued this is not even, I didn't even get to who got to rebuild. Yeah. I'm just talking about who got rescued. Yeah. And um, I think he leveled with me. I think mm-hmm. he was mm-hmm. being honest. And I think it was a moment for me that I understood, well, I have a purpose here. We've got to change these laws. We've got to change this society. It is the structures that we are living in that's the problem. I'm not talking about you liking me or me liking you anymore. We're now going to talk about does this work for the least of us, which goes back to that very Catholic upbringing, you know, that, you know, that's what I learned. That's who we're supposed to care about. Mm -hmm. That's who we're supposed to take the time to make things work for, you know. So um, the structures and the laws of our country do not work for the least of us. In fact, they create and marginalize people. They create vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And then we blame people for that vulnerability right. by saying you know, something about their own individual acts. What we witnessed in Katrina was not a series of poor, poor choices by individuals. Right. We witnessed the breakdown of a system or we witnessed a system working the way it was designed to that work. It was designed, yeah. yeah. There was, um, you've talked about um, when you came home from Washington, and that people would say, Coco's home, Coco's home. And that had a really particular meaning. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, every, my name is Coco, everyone. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, um, my name was actually Chocola. I don't know if you, uh, well, there's some French uh, influence a, in that. I think that's a revelation here in this yes. room for us. <laughs> My name, my name, I came out uh, a little chocolate baby amongst very fair-skinned people. <laughs> and so my name was Chocolat, yeah. and my nickname is Coco. And when I came home, what my community knew was that they had, they had, we had 500 fish dinners from my undergrad. We had right. 500 more fish dinners from my law school. They got you to Kenyon College. They got me to Kenyon. Yeah. They got, they, they bought all of my tickets to go. You know, I, yes, I got into college, but college is very expensive and then you got to get there and then you need books. And my community paid for all of that, you know, and I'm so grateful to have, t- to come from that. But they knew that I was, I'm theirs, you know. And so when I came home, it was someone that we have helped to become educated can help us. Um, with with what we're going through right now, and so then I started reading Red Cross papers and FEMA work, FEMA paperwork, and you know I'm thinking to myself, um, I'm a lawyer and I can't understand this stuff. How can regular right. folks understand what they're signing? Um, and they were signing their life away. They were signing their property. They were signing, you know, to receive dollars that then got. Um, got them into lawsuits with the federal government because they didn't spend them the right way. Or, you know, no one's telling them what to do. They're just telling them to sign the paperwork. And this got to 
understanding, you know, what it, what happens when you don't invest in your education system? What, what happens when the rest of the nation allows for the South's education system to go to those low levels? Um, it means in disaster, people don't understand the paperwork that they're signing or the implications behind them. And oh, by the way, neither did the lawyer. <laughs> you know, like I had to yeah. like break that stuff down. And, really and that's so, so granular, right? That's so close to home. That's not that's not being able to read legal documents. I mean, it's not. It's not. It's not about reading. Any, it's not about complexity. It's about things that feel like they should be simple. Should be. Should, should be very be. simple. I mean, what was it? You were the third lawyer in, in four or five generations to come out of your community. That's right. That's right. And I was the first girl. Mm-hmm. Um, the other two were well, were older men. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that I, I knew of. You know, but they're my my older uncles' ages, and yeah, my community was very proud of me. Mm-hmm. And I was proud. I didn't realize that that was a, you know, you don't really think about those things. Like, oh, I'll be the first girl. Um, you just think, um, I want to do my best, and I want to represent my community in a really good way. Um, but I think being a girl, being a woman, was actually quite helpful in this situation because it wasn't just lawyering skills that were needed. It was empathy, mm-hmm. and it was patience, and yeah. it was... Um, the ability to be quiet and not take up space, you know, servitude. Like, you know, you know, I mean, I cleaned up a lot before we got to the paperwork. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, yeah. I held babies and cried with people before we got to the paperwork. And that's something I think um, being raised as a, a, a black Southern woman, you know, those are mm. things we get endowed with. And it was a, it was a necessary part of that process. Mm. What did you think you were going to law school for? <laughs> Well, I had plans. Uh-huh. I was going to be Secretary of State. That was where I was going to land. Yeah. I was going to be a prosecutor at The Hague against international war criminals. See, I had, <laughs> I had big dreams. Yeah. Um, yeah, I had a very sort of, um, I want to represent the United States on the global stage around right and around justice. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, it was... Um, you know, I was watching all these dictators and stuff go through the, the International Criminal Court. I was like, yeah, I'm going to do that. You know, I want to take on a dictator. You know what I'm saying? I feel like I could win that fight. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and that's where I thought I was going to go. And then I wanted to be Secretary of State because I just thought, like, you know, I want to I wanna be in the world. I want to be in, the, in a global conversation about right and, and mm-hmm. hum- humanity. And I really projected all of that outward. And I have to tell you, there were this, there was several moments, but many moments of, of studying international uh, studies and thinking about how all of this pertains to the third world and the developing world. But coming home post-Katrina, I said, this is everything I learned about international human rights, about right. human rights standards. It's right here, and it yeah. is right now. I would say you have stepped into what has become the 21st century dynamic that brings all of that together, okay. and it is intimate and civilizational at once. And you're not Secretary of State, <laughs> but you are. You did found, and you, you're the co-executive director of this incredible institution called the Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy. And this is just... This is just a sliver of what you're doing. Um, uh, the Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy co-chairs the National Water Equity and Climate 
Climate Resilient Caucus with Policy Link, serves on the steering committee of the Ocean Justice Forum. Or is this just you? Or is this you? And <laughs> this is you, not just this is you. And anchors the five-state multi-issue initiative Gulf South for a Green New Deal. You also lead the Red, Black, and Green New Deal, the National Climate Initiative for the Movement for Black Lives. And, you know, you. I, I said a minute ago, I don't think climate activists is those aren't big enough words. And you've also said climate change is not the problem. And, but I think climate, the words climate change are part of the problem yeah. because they dull us and right there. So, so I would love to spend a few minutes because you use language so, so powerfully you, um, and this is in the context of your speaking, but also in how the Gulf Coast Center kind of formulates. It's like you're creating a vocabulary mm -hmm. that I think opens up what is at stake and what this is really about. And I just want to ask you to kind of take us inside some of these. So one of them is, the, you know, I think I feel like this is a vocabulary for reframing and framing as everything. The these civilizational challenges and callings, we're bringing them into relief. So like one of them, I had not heard this phrase before, maybe because I'm not into this, but <laughs> you know, I'm not, not, I'm not, I don't know this field, but energy democracy, mm -hmm. what is that? Yes, well, I won't take credit for that one. That is, uh, it's actually a movement. And okay. to understand some of these words, we have to go right back to those systems that are um, not built for us. And if you think about the energy systems, especially the way most of us experience energy systems, is um, you pay a bill and you know you flick on a light, and that's pretty much what you know about your energy. Um, but we have energy companies, we have utilities that um, choose what kind of energy uh, you're going to have. So it's not up to you if you want solar; it's up to your utility what kind of energy they're going to they're going to give to you. Um, and then there are energy companies. So in my neck of the woods, it's a lot of oil and gas. Um, and these energy companies don't ask you where you where we should drill. They, they do what they want to do. And energy democracy says all of those decisions should be in the hands of the community. All of all of where you get your your energy sources from should be in the hands of the community. You should be free to even collectivize your energy sources if you want to. So if we wanted to have our own community-controlled solar grid, we should be able to do that. But right now, many of us live in and states... And people aren't free to do that? No. And in fact, there are laws now coming on the books that are stopping uh, any kind of benefit for having solar, any kind of ability to collectivize your energy source. And this is what's happening state by state by state. So the energy democracy movement says all of this should be in the hands of the of the user, of the of the folks who are using the energy, not these big companies that are doing this really for profit margins. Um, and the democracy movement of it all is about being engaged. So it's not just about, you know, you shouldn't just think about voting as democracy. You should think about civic engagement, mm -hmm. prolonged civic engagement, which means informed uh, engagement in how your society is managed. That's what democracy is. Mm -hmm. and we don't have it. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, you know, in movement, they say you have to identify the problem, but the words you say over and over again is the direction you're going. So right. you're going toward climate justice. You're going toward energy democracy. And this is really our own freedom to make our choices around our energy systems mm -hmm. and to have that be uh, open and, and accessible to everyone. And something you also talk about, equitable disaster recovery. Now that one I'll take That's credit yours. for. That's yours. <laughs> okay. <mine. Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> because, you know, um, we in this country, we, we all have like this 
starting point of um, our own struggle, right? Our own existence. But the truth is the structures that exist have, have created imbalances. And in disaster, we don't think about how those um, discriminatory imbalances now equal um, aggregated impacts of vulnerability. And so when people talked about the Lower Ninth Ward flooding in New Orleans, nobody talked about how black folks were fo forced to live there because of segregation laws. And so now right. we're not just talking about someone who has a house in a floodplain. We're talking about history that put them there. And by the way, they weren't poor because they were black. That was the highest rate of homeowners in the city of New Orleans. But because they were black, the sort of the, the way they were treated was, was as though they were um, less than the homeowners in other parts of that city. Um, and we've got to be able to um, we've got to be able to see what history has created. Mm -hmm. And so equitable disaster recovery means you have to acknowledge the past in your action for the moment and for the future. This, this is about repair. It's mm -hmm. not just about response. And that is something that our current disaster response system just doesn't, actually none of our federal laws take equity into consideration. I just finished this work with the Louisiana governor's office and you know the concept of equity with the oil and gas industry and the agencies, which is like, not in the design. It's like glaze over. And, and even working with some national climate organizations, they get very nervous when you want to put equity in the vision or mm -hmm. in, the, in the mission uh, because their members won't like equity. And, but equity is about acknowledging harm. Mm -hmm. And we in this country have a real problem with that part, right? Mm -hmm. Because blame for us is shameful, right? Mm -hmm. Responsibility is shameful. Um, but we're all responsible. If we're maintaining this system, we are all responsible for the inequities, and therefore we are all responsible for solutions that are equitable. And it means we have to start at those places that we have created vulnerabilities in and then go from there. We, should, we have enough resources to help everybody. Right. This is about where you start. Um, something that you're so... Um you know, that I, I actually have learned a lot about, um, that you, you speak a lot about and work with is um, this, this future that, we, that is before us all of mass displacement, of forced, of migration, mm -hmm. both preemptive and forced. And um, yeah, again, like this, this is like those flood maps. It's not it's not a question of really if. Right. So, but just, it's a reality that I don't think that we've gotten our, wrapped our heads around. So yeah. talk about what you see that is, again, before us, all of us, in all of our regions. Yeah, I mean, migration is, For this country, migration has turned into sort of a, a bad word. It's associated with immigration. That's associated with only brown people coming across the border without authorization. Um, but migration is much bigger than that and much older than that. And 
I think we as uh, citizens of this country really need to get our head around how natural migration is mm -hmm. um, and look to the ecology that says migration is, is a natural part of our existence. And of an ecosystem. Of an ecosystem. Yeah. yeah. That said, my view on, on climate migration comes because I was an immigration attorney. Oh. And in Katrina, um, I mean... In the aftermath of Katrina, there was mass movement of people from the region, out of the region, right? Mm -hmm. That's a big storm, Nothing. everything's broken, everybody's got to go. But there was also an influx of immigrant labor brought in from South America. Mm -hmm. And this, these were brought on uh, blanket L visas and H-2B visas. These visas are used basically by these big companies, and at the time, the companies working in New Orleans and, and in the Gulf are the same companies who uh, work uh, in the war, uh, after war uh, torn places. So mm. it's the Halliburtons, it's the, you know, mm. these Shaw groups, these big, big companies that they bring in hundreds of people on one visa. Mm. And the visa is for the company. Right. And should the company decide to not want that visa, they can just cut it. And all of those hundreds of people have to deal with the consequence. An H-2B visa is a seasonal worker visa. They changed a lot of laws in the aftermath of Katrina to you know, make it easy for the recovery. We'll talk about that one. But mm. um, the, those visas are seasonal. They belong to the employer. When those workers who were brought in from South America, who cleaned up a lot, when they asked for their paycheck, they would fire them. And as soon as they terminated their jobs lawfully, their visas were up. They were now unlawful. So my first job in Katrina, after helping my community, was actually providing legal support for immigrants who had come in lawfully, who had had the audacity to demand their, their paycheck. Mm. They were fired, and then they were unlawful, and now they're in the United States with no papers, as it were. And, you know, I just watched that process. So here, a lot of black folks pushed out, couldn't get any jobs in recovery because they had brought in immigrant labor to take those jobs at, by the way, way lower than mm -hmm. any mm -hmm. of those black folks would have taken, right? Mm -hmm. I believe they were paying people like $7 an hour and should have been more like 16 or 20 anyway. Um, it's a mass movement of people, yeah. people out, people in. And then there was people who came in to gentrify not because they right, were trying to be... Yeah, that's, you call that. There's a, well, first of all, I want to say, you. Um, yeah. there was also a personal level to this, right? You said there, there were so many people who didn't come back. Oh, man. That, that there was this trauma of, of people who are missed. Yeah. Um, so, I, mean, and I feel like it was, it's a story we don't know. There's two ways they left. One was a lot of our vieux, a lot of our old people, they died. Mm -hmm. And they died because what we were hearing was the stress of it all was like like two years of life, basically. So if they were really old and they had a couple of years left, this this just took them out. Mm -hmm. And and so after you survived the storm, it was funeral after funeral after funeral after funeral. I mean, it was mm -hmm. just unbelievable. And there was all of our old people. They held our language. They held our culture. Oh, man, it was terrible. Mm -hmm. The other way people left is that it was just long-term displacement. My mom, my brother, my sister, they're all in Texas. I'm the only one from my core family in Louisiana, and it's because I didn't have children. And they're still there. And they're still there. It's a 16-year late. They're not, I mean, 
They're not coming back. I was just in New Mexico. The guy who picked me up from the airport was a little youngster during Katrina. He's in, he's in New Mexico now. And um, I forgot, you know, mm -hmm. I just forgot how far and wide we all were. Yeah. Um, so it's thousands of people not back. Mm -hmm. It's thousands. You know, the, mm -hmm. the recovery got talked about in numbers, the way yeah. climate does, yeah. right? Yeah. This is how many of the population are in New Orleans right now, and therefore the city's okay. But it wasn't the same people. It was the same mm -hmm. numbers, Right. but not the same people. Right. And yeah, it's been really hard because we lost a lot of culture. My mom is one of the last speakers of our language and she's in Texas now, you know? Um, and what happens when she's not here anymore? Mm -hmm. we, we lose that. Mm -hmm. And um, now she comes home and she has to go visit, you know, all the people. And she used to come home all the time for funerals and I, she stopped doing that. I think it just got to be too much for her. But um, And now people who have um, moved away, they claim Texas as their home. They claim Georgia. They claim Tennessee because that's where they are. So here's that huge, this huge dynamic of internal immigration that's that we, right. it's not part of. And then yes, this climate gentrification yes. is another phrase I've learned from you. Yes. What is that? Um, so I'll just say on the last piece, um, mm -hmm. climate migration is a much better way um, to say it, because if we say climate migration, we can talk about people coming across international borders and people crossing state borders. Mm -hmm. And internally displaced persons are what we all are inside of our country, right? Mm -hmm. So it's in, it's international law that gives us rights, not our country. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not the it's not the U.S. Uh, Stafford Act. It's not the it's not the federal laws that give us rights. It's the international law that gives us rights as we move and migrate. But climate gentrification. Wasn't ready for that one because um, here we are just watching loads and loads of people come into the city because they find it a great opportunity for their career. They are curious about living in a disaster zone. They want to be down with the poor people. You know, it was really um, and probably most an angering part. I don't even like to go to New Orleans anymore. It's not the same. All of the culture has been commodified because everything has to be sold to this new group of people. It's you know, culture in, in South Louisiana just bubbles up. It's like a swamp, you know. <laughs> it's just like it's just, it's just there. You just you know, you just feel it, you just you just yeah. smell it, you just taste it. Yeah. And now it's packaged and it's you know, I watch them use like second lines, these very these very um precious traditions for us for like birthday parties or doing like dances that we would do in communities is like exercise class and it made me think about yoga in a different way. I'm like, I wonder how they really feel about us doing all this yoga, you know, like just taking, just taking their stuff and just doing it because we want to, you know, right. yeah. it's hard. Um, someone, I remember going to Hawaii and watching Hawaiians perform for tourists. And I thought to myself, this is where we're headed. This is what Louisiana is about to be. It's about mm -hmm. to be a performance at best. Mm -hmm. um, and it, that's the saddest part because it's such a rich place. You know, it's such an old place. Yeah. It was a the first cosmopolitan city of this nation mm -hmm. was on that, on mm -hmm. the mouth of this river mm -hmm. that we share with Minnesota, you know. Yes, this river. That's right. Um, you, you also... It, 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 I, I also learned from you about, uh, I, and I guess these are things that we kind of know are happening even in Minnesota, that, you know, this this will be a place for climate refugees, right? This this cooler weather we have. Um, um, 
that there are places where people are, you know, that ha- that it has been uh, best to live on the water and and high ground, but that that is going to there's going to be this kind of forced reversal of that as part of this. That's part of the story. Yeah. For people living on the coast, mm-hmm. the best thing to do will be to go inland. And that will be the climate migration that we see in places like Minnesota. However, what's not talked about is that in places like Minnesota, where folks don't have like air conditioning, right? Is that right? Well. Air condi- okay, maybe. Well, I, what I've noticed is in the Northeast, these houses, these people yeah. live without air conditioning, yeah. right? Because there's really no need for it. Mm-hmm. Um, what we're going to see are um, the largest amount of heat deaths are going to be in the Midwest because folks aren't ready for the heat. Mm-hmm. So the water, yes, you're inland and you're safe from it, but the mm-hmm. heat, mm-hmm. no one's going to be able to run from. And the prediction right now, if you look at the predicted heat death maps, Minnesota, Ohio, all of these places that are supposed to be safe are going to be where you see really a lot of people mm-hmm. um, who are uh, per capita who who die from just 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 the new heat and temperature rises. Mm-hmm. So, I feel like you are you ha- you have you have a lot of um, you know expertise, but you also have gathered a lot of wisdom, and um, I just want to kind of give you back some of your words and have you, you know, take us again inside them. We must have the courage to admit we have taken too much. I mean, it's hard. It's, it's hard living in this country and even the response to disaster or harm is to go purchase something. You know, that's, we don't even know what we're doing. We're so uncon. We just do it unconsciously. We're so wealthy. Just go buy it. Just go take it. It's yours to take. Um, it takes a lot of courage to examine that, right? Because we would have to examine our comfort. We would have to examine the things we worked all our lives to get the the, the standards. Mm-hmm. We have really harmful standards that are harming the planet. Our standards. The amount of energy that we consume, one American, equals more than 300 people in Ethiopia. One American. One American consuming energy. And look what's going to happen to them when the heat rises in Ethiopia. They're not going to be able to pay an electric bill. Mm-hmm. You know, um, We are, as a country, as a nation, as a people who love comfort and love what we love and love our freedom, we are at the tip of the, of the blame knife. And we are causing a lot of harm and we're not paying attention. We're thinking about climate impacts as something that's harming those poor people over there because they're poor or because they have a bad leader or, you know, but that's not what's happening. Mm -hmm. Our consumption is causing this problem. Because they're unlucky. They're unlucky. Yeah. You know, if we, if we, if we believe in luck, then um, there's some responsibility that goes with that. Mm -hmm. If we're lucky enough to live in this country and to have what we have, then we don't just get to recycle and feel better about ourselves. It's time to show up at the hard places, 
right? Mm -hmm. And I'm not just talking about city council. I'm talking about Congress and these international spaces. Like our voices, the voices of very comfortable, educated Americans needs to be in those places because everybody else is waiting for us to admit that we are the engine of the harm. Mm -hmm. And so that takes courage. I mean, you know, who wants to admit that about themselves? You know, something you just did, mm. I think, is part of the move. Because to call for courage, yeah. right? Not just to say, we, we have to admit that we don't. That let's, so let's call that courage. That, that is, what we're, what is what we're called to. Yeah. Yeah. It is courage. You know, it's, we don't like to look in the mirror. That stuff takes courage. You know, I, I fight with those things all the time. You know, like how much, what's the line between the, the blame that stops you from action mm -hmm. and the mm -hmm. acknowledgement that catapults you to, yeah. to do the right thing? Right. That's a, you got to practice that, you know, yeah. you got to practice that one every day or else, you know, and, and, I, and you can't be mad at people because there's a journey, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know. I used to get very mad at people. That takes like, practice, too. Ooh, girl. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, yeah. the amount of patience it takes for middle-class white folks to understand the plight of brown people in this country is just like, how much longer do you need me to sit here and be nice about this? Mm. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm Southern. You know, we can wait. <laughs> we, can, we can go nice and slow for you, but, like, yeah. it's, you know, it's, um, at some point it feels like you're ignoring me. Mm -hmm. At some point, it mm -hmm. feels like you're not listening to mm -hmm. me. And now that's just disrespectful. Right. You know, which we don't do in the South. Right. Right? Disrespect is a, right. that's a line. Yeah. So, um, you, you know, the courage is something to, to practice and patience is too. But we are facing a crisis that we have maybe seven years at most to make some corrections on. So... We've all got to get to that a little quicker. Mm -hmm. I feel like you just walked into also something that really defines you um, in in a in a quiet way. Um, is it the, for you? There's a spiritual aspect to this existential challenge, and it feels to me like that has grown more and more important to you. For sure. I mean, you know, all of the lessons that can take you. To really admit climate, to really, really admit that you understand what is happening to the planet, it will break your heart. If, if you don't cry deep, hard tears for the state of this planet and all of the people on it, you don't, under, you don't yet understand the problem. And so once you get to that place, the only thing that can bring you out of that kind of darkness is belief in something greater than yourself. And... For me, it is that spiritual connection. For me, it is, you know, um, understanding a greater purpose. And, and then your job becomes less about passing a piece of legislation and more about making a better world. And so for me, this is absolutely spirit now. I mean, what do we have to lose? Well, we're going to lose everything. So, and my last name is Battle. We're going to lose everything. My last name is Battle. What am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to fight. I'm supposed to fight, but I'm supposed to fight with, um, supposed to fight with tools that build people up, 
mm-hmm. not tools that take people down and take mm-hmm. them out. Mm-hmm. And that's love, you know, that's patience, that's all of those things that they taught you in Sunday school. They were right, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, whatever the faith tradition is, they those yeah. whittle down the same ones, you know, across the board, love, patience, you know, care. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that's... It's spiritual now. It's it's this is a this is a moral dilemma we're in. Mm-hmm. It's not a scientific one. Mm-hmm. This is not about greenhouse gas reduction. Mm-hmm. This is about do we value people equally? And if we do, we've got some recalibrating to do as a planet. Here's some other wisdom from you. This this challenge requires us to recognize a power greater than ourselves and a life longer than the ones we will live. It requires us to believe in the things that we are privileged enough not to have to see. That's right. That was me being mad at folks who just... Um, <laughs> That's a really eloquent way of being mad, you know, I have to say. I'm trying, I'm trying. <laughs> um, I'm just... That was, that's, those are my words around us still sitting quietly about this thing. I, I can't believe that it is the U.S. government. It's our government. It's our representatives under every administration in these international talks that are stopping the conversation that says finance the work needed for the people who are feeling the impacts of climate finance that because you caused it. It's our country saying no. People representing me saying no. I'm not saying no. I'm saying, you know what? That sounds, that sounds fair. Why, did, why is that not what my country is saying? That that sounds fair and we were wrong and we're sorry. Mm-hmm. And here's the least we can do because one year of profits from some of these multinational corporations, one cent on the dollar tax on all of the people who could pay it could pay for half of this stuff. And by the way, we put these countries in debt to us. They have to pay their debt payments and they can't pay for climate resiliency. And we're letting that happen. Like that to me is like, come on now. Like we're better than that. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's us on the international stage. And we wonder why people don't like us. We wonder why people mad. This is why, because mm-hmm. we do that. Mm-hmm. And, and then inside the country, somebody tried to quote me. They, they were like, here, is this quote okay for you? And they were like, we like to appreciate the Biden administration for all of the work they did on the infrastructure. But I was like, no, 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 no. There's nothing about that infrastructure package or that Build Back Better package that we should be excited about because it does not adequately address the problem. Now we're just playing politics with this thing, and this is not a political issue. We, it's time to put the money, it's time to put the action, it's time to put all of that into this issue. This is lives we're talking about. This is mass migration, this is people's lives, this is heat deaths, this is fires, this is storm. This, put everything into this. We're fighting over whether or not people should have the right to vote. Yeah. We're fighting right. over whether or not people should have the right to their bodies. That is Child's play compared to what this climate crisis is. Where is the ang- where is the righteous indignation on this issue, mm-hmm. and why can't we get past that? And it seems to me that you that this spiritual 
power that you bring to this allows you to, it's part of how you, and we're like experiencing the fullness of this, you, you see the issues, you see the trauma, you see the effect on our psyches and our spirits and on all kinds of people's psyches and spirits to, in different, at different magnitude. And you, you, you say, I come from a people who are energized by joy. And you are holding those things together mm-hmm. in how you fight yes. for all of us. Yeah. This is, a, this is a country paralyzed by fear right now. And the only thing that can, that fear, you know, Yoda. <laughs> Thought I'd quote Let's a great get one. the wisdom Thought of I'd the quote elders a great in one here. here. Okay. Yoda said, fear leads to anger. You know, love leads to joy. That's a Colette, Colette and Yoda. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the joy comes from love. Mm. You know, we, 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 to combat this thing, to combat the oil, oil industry's fear of losing profit. Mm. I have got to help to bring joy of the community's love of everything that they are. And that's the only thing that's going to fight that. Mm. Um, it's who I am. I don't, mm. I don't come from, I really, you know, I have an angry streak, but I don't come from angry people. <sighs> I am so grateful to have come from folks who, who celebrate family during a hurricane, who... You know, every year for my birthday, my uncle, who was this wayward person in the world, he showed up to boil crawfish because that's like my favorite thing. <laughs> um, you know, I remember going to like all of my cousins' games for everything because we show up for each other. And these are the things that I've learned, not as a lawyer, but just as a human citizen. Mm. And this is what I bring to organizing. Every now and again, the law shows up, you know. But mostly it's the community building and the joy. Yeah, the there love. was this, Jane Fonda actually interviewed you for this <laughs> virtual thing. Um, and she was asking you about organizing in the pandemic. And you, you said, well, she said, how do you do that? And you said, like, organize prayerfully. But you also said this beautiful thing. You said, organizing is about checking on people. That's right. That's checking right. in with how people are. How are you doing? Um, we need to wind down, but I don't want to do that before we um, note that here we are sitting in Minnesota in January. And it's not your first time at this, at this place on the Mississippi. Um, would you tell us a little bit about the Sacred Waters pilgrimage? Was that in, was that in the midst of the pandemic? It was in, in the midst of the pandemic. Right? So I, I kept getting messages from my grandfather in my dreams about mm. the Mississippi River and a pilgrimage. I didn't know anything else. And um, in 2020, we did a seven-month pilgrimage down the Mississippi River from the headwaters in Minnesota all the way to the mouth in Louisiana. And the pilgrimage was just for black and native women and two-spirit folk. Mm -hmm. And we did ritual at every stop at every full moon. And we used the different colors of the chakras. So... Um, you know, everyone was dressed in a particular color mm. together. And during ritual, there was no colonized language allowed. Mm. So it was only indigenous African language and indigenous Turtle Island languages that were spoken in ritual um, or ceremony uh, that was done. And some things you didn't get to see, right? Some ritual right. is not for everybody to see. Yeah. But the intention was done together. And 
the first step before every stop was to find indigenous people of the land where we wanted to stop and get permission. And then those indigenous women, many of them would come and join us and we would bring gifts from mm -hmm. our homes and they had to be natural gifts and then ceremony. And it's really beautiful. I mean, it was in the midst of COVID. We had, you know, all of our protocols in place and then we let spirit do the rest. And it was um, very powerful. In addition to the ceremonies, we had these conversations about the river. And um, indigenous folks in Iowa were talking about industrial farming um, and how it's messing up the soil. And they met with the indigenous people in Louisiana who are at the bottom of the river where there's a dead zone and the fish can't live because of the runoff. And it turns out that the fertilizer and the pesticides are all fossil fuel based. So they're drilled and pulled up in Louisiana, refined in Cancer Alley, brought up to Minnesota and Iowa. Then they run off into the river and they create a dead zone where the fish can't live. And this is the story that the women told each other and they mm. cried. Mm. They cried for the river and they asked for forgiveness. And in addition to reconnecting with the water, we took some time to address the tensions between black and indigenous people and apologize to each other for what being colonized did to both of us. And those were very, very strong and powerful conversations, acknowledgments that just hadn't happened. So that work now that requires black and native people to move together can, mm. can move, can flow like that water a little better. It's that repair. That repair. We get nowhere without it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I, I kind of want to, I'd love to now spend another hour <laughs> hearing like what your people, your community, what you are learning, because really Hurricane Katrina was kind of on the front edge yes. that we're all on. Yes. And we don't have time to hear all about that. But I think the question I'd like to ask you, and I ask it for Minnesota, but I ask it for you know, people who would be listening anywhere, um, what have you learned about how we can accompany each other? Hmm. I think I've learned that even people who, are, who see the world differently from you they love something. And if we take the time to share what we love with one another, we can see each other's humanity and we can feel each other's value. And if we can connect in a real way, that's what we need to accompany each other because some of what is gonna be asked is that you just let me be, you know, as relocation and all of this stuff happens, some people are gonna choose something other than what you would choose. And to accompany them is to just understand what they love and respect it. So I think, you know, let's take the time to connect through love and, and stick with each other as we practice our own liberation, our own liberated stance on this thing, mm. which will not always be the answer we want to hear, but it'll be someone practicing freedom. And that's the part we have to respect. If I ask you, um, this is a big question, but just today, just right this hour, like what is, what is, what is making you despair and what is 
bringing you hope? Mm. What is giving you hope? Um, I feel sadness around the inability to value the feminine mm. and the power of it and acknowledge that it is the other half of this circle. And if we do not respect it um, through women, but also through a care economy and through taking care of each other and, you know, these things that we have learned to devalue because we've put this masculine thing on high, like... I feel sadness that we still don't we still don't see it. Even 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 the feminist movement has something to learn about mm-hmm. respecting the feminine. You know, so I feel sadness about that because I I'm not sure. I thought race was the biggest problem, and then I'm just watching this gender thing, and it's really sad. Mm-hmm. Um, but I get hope. You know. I, I've been listening to some music. I, I love listening to music, and I've been listening to some of the, what's coming out of the next generation, and I have my critiques. I'm, I'm officially like an old lady, and I'm like, hey, music. Uh, <laughs> y'all don't know real um, But uh, I was riding, listening to this song the other day, and I had a 19-year-old with me named Tyler, and I said, uh, I said, oh, check out this song I found. We turned it up. There was a beautiful sunrise over the, a sunset over Lake Pontchartrain, and it was just this beautiful music and sounds I hadn't heard put together before. And I said, you know, I got a lot of critiques about this generation, whatever y'all are. But y'all are very creative. Hmm. You have a you have a freedom with your creativity that is that can be beautiful, and so we're gonna need that level of creativity to get out of this thing. And I am hopeful that the next generation that has a lot of challenges also has enough creativity to to get out of it to get to the next level. And we'll accompany them too. Ashay, we'll be right there with them. Colette, I'm just really glad you're in the world and that you're a comrade in all this work that we all have had. Um, So thank you so much for coming here and for doing what you do. Thank you. And I I can't tell you how glad I am when I had to leave my religious practice. I had your show on Sundays to listen to. (laughs) Ashe, thank you. Thank you.